listening to ESL Talk, a podcast made for English teachers by English teachers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to ESL Talk, a podcast made for English teachers by English teachers. Here are your hosts, Daniel and Golnaz. Hello, welcome to episode 10 of ESL Talk. We are already 10 episodes in, a great achievement, and we appreciate your support along the way. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for helping us on this journey so far. It's um, already been 10 episodes. So today's episode is quite a controversial one, again, quite a deep one. We're talking about IELTS, the obsession that universities, teachers, and students all have with the IELTS exam. As we know, this is a requirement in many universities, and as such, millions of teachers and students have to either teach, administer, or examine the test each year. So later on today, we'll be speaking to our special guest, Moses, who is a former IELTS examiner and teacher. He's going to tell us all about his experiences, his ideas, and his thoughts on this phenomenon, this obsession with IELTS. So for those listeners who might not be fully aware, what is the IELTS exam? Yeah, I'm sure we've all heard of this, but essentially it's the International English Language Testing System, or IELTS, which is an English proficiency test, which essentially um, is required for a lot of institutions, for universities, um, immigration, that kind of thing. And this is the, the benchmark or the standard that a lot of people, a lot of organizations use um, to test someone's English, essentially. Um, it's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's not without its flaws, um, but it is what's generally accepted. So that's why a lot of people have to gravitate towards this. And why is it requested by universities or employers or governments? So because it's administered by the British Council um, or another organization called IDP in Australia, those are kind of very well-renowned um, organizations with a pretty strong reputation. So it's important that governments and universities can kind of trust the results and where they're coming from. So they have very high standards. So they generally request this exam. Um, depending where you live, they might accept other exams such as um, Cambridge exams or um, TOEFL. Um, I know those are some other scoring um, English scores that they can accept as well. But generally, IELTS is a standard, and that's what most people look for um, when it comes to English proficiency. Thank you. And I have another question for you, Daniel. Why does the ESL industry obsess with this so much? 
<laughs> well, I'm sure you know the same. That's there's a lot on the line. It's high stakes, you know. A good IELTS score can mean the difference between, you know, your dream job, your dream university, moving to another country, getting immigration, or whatever it might be. Um, even just you know proving your English ability for yourself. It, it, there's a lot of the, on the line, um, and you know a lot of people have to spend a lot of money in order to do this. Um, and if they don't get the scores they need, they might have to spend even more money on tutoring, on lessons, on additional classes to get them to that level. So it's very high stakes and a lot of people rely on a good English score and a good IELTS score in order to actually, you know, follow what they need to do and make certain dreams or certain, you know, goals become real. So there's a lot on the line. That's why it's really important. Um, so I want to just share with you a little bit about my experience taking the test because I took the test. But can you share with me your experience first about taking the test? Sure. I recently took it uh, last summer and I took it in Turkey. I, <laughs> um, I actually prepared for it only in one week, which was not enough, but it was okay. I got the result that I wanted. And, you know, um, taking the test, taking the IELTS test is just much different with what you do when you are teaching your students how to take it and what to do when they want to take it. But, um, for me, IELTS is just my most favorite English test. I'm not I'm not ready to take any other test in English, uh, except for the IELTS because it's just uh, well structured, and uh, if you know what you need to do, uh, there is no way you can fail. I mean, it's just um, a very well structured test that can uh, apply, you know, in different yeah. situations. I think the mistake a lot of candidates take is they don't take time to understand what the test is, you know, what do I need to do? How does it work? What are all the different sections? How long do I need to talk for? How much do I need to write? How much time do I have? So if students can start to understand those steps and understand those elements, then that's really going to help them when they're taking the test. So I always use the analogy of when you buy a new car, if you buy a new car and you've never been inside the car, you've never looked at the car before, it's going to be really difficult to drive. You're going to have to take some time to adjust, to get used to it, to kind of know how everything works. And you wouldn't do that generally. So you take some time to look around. What are the different areas? What are the different features? What do I need to do here? What should I do here? So it's really important to break it down and to obviously get a good understanding of it before you take it. Um, even as a native speaker, native speakers have seem to have this idea that, oh, English is my first language, I'll get like all nines, no problem. And the amount of times that hasn't happened is because they haven't taken time to really look at the test, what it is, and what each section requires them to do. So it's very frustrating for some people, but also it's also frustrating for me as a teacher because some students haven't understood what it is. So we have to go through that and we have to teach all the elements of it. So, Daniel, why don't you tell us about your experience taking the test? Yeah, um, it definitely gave me a really new perspective and helped me understand what my students go through. Um, this was required for immigration purposes. Um, even though I'm a native speaker, I'm an English teacher, I've had all my education in English, I've studied my degree, my master's degrees in English, I was still required to take it. And I'm glad that I did take it because it taught me a lot about you know, the processes and the different steps and how to navigate this exam. So in terms of the reading, um, the texts were quite simple, but again, a lot of people underestimate the questioning. So going through the questions, understanding what's the question asking me to do before 
going to the text and reading the text. So that's one thing that I learned because it can be easy to just get, get a reading and just read it. I don't know why I'm reading it. I don't know what I'm looking for. So one thing I definitely learned there was look at the questions first and then go back and then refer to the text. Um, in terms of listening, I actually did miss one of the answers because you only get one listen. So as I was listening through, I was trying to track the questions and for whatever reason, I was focusing on the wrong thing and I did miss one of the answers in the listening. But again, that's fine. With the listening, again, it can be quite difficult because you have different types of English. You have British English, American English, um, you know, Australian English. It, it could vary. So being prepared for that is also really important. Um, with the writing, it seems to be for most people that the writing is the biggest hurdle, or the most difficult um, aspect of the exam. So for writing, for me, it was just kind of how do I present my essay or my response in a way that's clear, that uses simple language, that's broken down step by step and is just very logical and developed. So um, my writing score was pretty high, um, not right at the top, but almost. So I was pretty happy with that. But again, that took time because I need to understand what is the examiner looking for? What do they want to see? It's not about what I want to say. It's about what they want to see. And another big thing that I also found from this was, you know, for example, the writing test two asked for 250 words and candidates regularly write 400, 500, 600 words. And that is going to affect you because you're not following what you've been asked to do. Um, it can be difficult as well to keep it to 250, but around that number is also really um, is a good figure. And that's why they give you that. So you can work to that. When it comes to speaking, um, that was quite easy for me because I have to you know, be professional in my job and in my communication. So that was fine. And my, the examiner actually asked me what I do for work. And when I said that, she kind of laughed. So I think it made things a little bit easier. But still, a lot of native speakers don't perform well on the IELTS speaking because they just use casual language. They're very relaxed. They kind of, you know, they don't talk for the full amount of time. Um, and they just feel like, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't need to be here. So just give me a nine and let's get out. And that doesn't happen. And that causes problems as well. Exactly. And making yourself aware of uh, the rubrics and how it works and like what you are being evaluated on uh, is really important to help you uh, get the results that you need. So what are the differences between taking and teaching the IELTS exam? Yeah, so when it comes to teaching the IELTS exam, I always stress the students, let's go through step by step. Let's break down each skill. Obviously, we know how to read, write, listen, speak. But as it pertains to the IELTS exam, what exactly do I have to do for reading? What exactly do I have to do for listening? What is the examiner looking for? It just goes back to those points. With speaking, it's really important that when you're teaching it, you make sure that students have maximum opportunities to talk, to expand their ideas, to give examples, to give explanations, and to use language that's natural. Um, and then when it comes to writing, again, well-structured, clear, easy to follow ideas. I think those are really important um, when teaching. And the fact that I've taken it as well helps me because I can kind of get a better understanding of the struggles that students have and how they can also um, navigate that. So, Obviously, you've taught this as well quite a bit, Golna. So what are some tips and advice that you would give to students who want to improve their IELTS score? Well, as I mentioned, um, becoming aware uh, of... I mean, your teacher uh, will definitely do this, uh, will make you aware of what you need to know before taking the test. But uh, the most important thing is uh, to understand that this is a test and you have a time limit. Um, 
being able to perform well within that time limit is something else um, um, and being able to perform well in general is something else so you might be able to perform well in all the four skills in general but like when there is a time limit to what you need to do or when there is uh, some uh, other restrictions that um put you in that situation and then you are uh, being tested in that situation and also at the adding the stress and everything um, you need to consider all of these and break all of these into smaller uh, let's say um, blocks to be able to manage them so that's my uh, number one tip be aware of the structure of the test be aware of how it works be aware of the strategies that you need to perform well and be aware of how you can manage your time well plus uh, doing a lot of practice tests before taking the test. Uh, I mean, uh, you might have finished um, your um, English courses and you might have uh, finished your preparation courses and everything, but like uh, a month before the test is should be dedicated to practice tests and to managing your time well during the test and managing your um, stress and your you know emotions well during the uh, during the test. That's really important, I think, to do before taking the IELTS. Yeah, that's so many considerations, and there's so many things that we have to factor in, um, not just as teachers, but also um, you know for our students and. You know, if, if we are thinking about teaching the IELTS, a, a good piece of advice might be actually to do a mock test or do a practice test or try to simulate what students go through. We have a lot of different things to cover here. We're only just kind of starting to scratch the surface. So we'll pick this up after the break with our special guest, Moses. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All right, everyone, welcome to the next portion of our today's podcast. Today with us, we have Moses joining us. Hello, Moses. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Moses, can you tell us a little about your teaching journey to date? Sure. Um, well, I've been teaching English now for, I think it's coming up to 20 years. Uh, I began in early 2000, uh, traveling overseas, teaching in mostly in China, mostly in Asia. And then um, after one year teaching in a, uh, in, a, in a university there, I realized uh, being, a, being a native speaker doesn't really equate to being an English teacher. So I, I came back. Uh, it, was, it was humbling, but I came back. I uh, did, did some studies, so I did my master's. And then um, just basically taught locally at an uh, academic test prep school. So that's where I got experience with the you know, IELTS and as, ver- as well as various um, courses. I uh, did that for a number of years. And then about four years ago, moved over to Langira, again, teaching academic English. And that's where I'm still at today. Great. Thank you. Awesome. So yeah, as we know, today's topic is all about IELTS. And you mentioned a little bit how you got into that. How did you get into the examining and the examination side of IELTS? Sure. Yeah. So what happened was at my at my previous uh, school before I went to Langara, uh, I was doing a lot of test prep. So uh, it was mostly a speaking course, and we focused on uh, four major exams. It was the TOEIC, the IELTS, um, the TOEFL, and then there was another one called the OPIC. And I had no experience with the IELTS at that point, but I was given the task of teaching it. So of course, you know, I went and looked at all the books, downloaded whatever material I could, start teaching, and then realized. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> the material there is so confusing. And I was thinking, if there's only some way I could figure out the secrets behind the IELTS. And then um, I'm also a member of BCTL, one of the local um, uh, organizations here, uh, professional organizations. And there was a job posting that came up for an IELTS examiner. I'm thinking, oh, this is this is it. I, I've got to try this, you know, because I can't figure out the IELTS. So I applied and, um, and they accepted me. Um, so I did that for a number of years uh, examining. But it started off by... Uh, yeah, teaching it first without really knowing it. And then when the opportunity came, it was like, um, yeah, this would be great. And and it, it was a great opportunity. Um, that's how I got into it. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. So I guess this leads into the next question. Why do you think so many students, you know, professionals, teachers, why do they care so much? All we hear is IELTS, 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 and not so much these other tests that might have been popular 5, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Well, IELTS, um, it, it is growing. It, it's internationally recognized. It's, it's a very popular exam. Um, and it's, it's a very high stakes exam, too. I think that's why so many people care about it. Um, I did do some tutoring on the side, too, um, with IELTS. And a lot of the students that were looking to get the scores were, um, there were lawyers, there were doctors, there were business administrators, uh, very, very smart people. But it was just limited by that English requirement. And IELTS was the one that was recognized. So it's a very high stakes exam. It's, it's a, it's, you know, it, it can really change your life, whether you can um, do well in it or not. So I think that's why 
you know, it's so it's so important and, and it's so common nowadays too. Great. And um, in order to make a comparison between taking the IELTS exam and examining it, I want to ask you, what are some differences between these two? Oh, yeah, it, it's a world of difference. Um, the way I would compare it, it is it's almost like being a fluent native speaker versus being an English teacher. Okay. So growing up, you know, speaking English, you, you just do it naturally. You can just speak it. But when you actually have to go and teach it, it's, it's quite another thing because you might not be aware of what you're actually doing. Uh, and I would say that it's very similar to examining. Uh, taking the exam is, again, just it's a demonstration of English proficiency. So just being able to use English well. But to be able to teach it and more importantly, to assess it, you need a lot of specialized training because it's, it's, so, it's so specialized. It's so, it's so standardized. You have to be very disciplined. You need a very systematic, very objective approach. And, um, and, and there's a lot of things that people might not be aware of. So even for myself in my journey, um, being a native speaker myself, I couldn't tell you why or what would make, for example, uh, what would make me a good speaker. I just knew I could do it. So the same way for examining, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite different. And um, just understanding the criteria for assessment, um, it, I would say it's, it's a world of difference. Definitely hear you there. And I, I do empathize with you as well because I've been there myself. I know what it's like and I've had to take the test as well. So mm. I've seen both sides and how very different they are because a lot of native speakers take the IELTS exam and they don't perform very well because they don't understand what what is needed, what's required, what skills you need to display. So that's right. It has a lot of um, a lot of potential issues. So this leads on to the next question perfectly. How do you quote unquote teach IELTS skills to students? Because there's so many factors, so many considerations. How would you go about you know a teaching approach or a teaching style for this? Sure. So uh, I, I would I would speak in general terms first, and then. I think there is a secret to teaching IELTS, <laughs> which I will I will share. Uh, first off, in terms of just the the general approach, um, I would break it up into the four skills. So IELTS testing is broken up into reading, writing, listening, and speaking. So it logically makes sense to approach those in four in, in those four skills. Um, for reading and listening, those are generally a little bit easier to approach. Um, those that of you that have experience with the test, you know it's it, you're either right or wrong. So it's very easy just to do it yourself and check the answers at the back and see how you did. So getting feedback for those are fairly straightforward. Uh, speaking and writing, however, is is not the case. That's kind of like a mystery, right? Because you can do it and practice all you want, but you never know exactly how, you, how you're doing. You, you can't get uh, feedback. So for, for things like reading and listening, I would say, you know, there's, there's a lot of great test strategies, a lot of general skills that you can pick up. So general reading and listening skills, um, you know, definitely vocabulary. Def, you definitely need a good command of vocabulary. So specifics would be like getting into the academic word list, uh, knowing your collocations, uh, things like that. That's the basic building blocks of, of, the, voc of the reading and listening. Uh, test strategies, you know, books are great for this. Make sure you know how to do, you know, your skimming and scanning, uh, paraphrasing, referencing, looking for organizational structure, signal words, uh, your your grammar. So those are some of the general skills that you need. And then I, I would suggest you, you look at the task types because IELTS is very specific in the type of questions they ask you. So you really need to get familiar with the task types. For example, reading, whether it's paragraph matching, whether it's the uh, yes, no, not given, which is really tricky. Uh, people aren't familiar with the not given option. Um, there, there's, there's just so many different types that you really have to be aware of. Listening, the same thing. You can pick up a book, do it on your own, uh, get used to the task types, the tricks that they have. Uh, for listening, I would also say emphasize, uh, put, put some emphasis on pronunciation. I think this is something that's overlooked. Um, 
one one trick one one challenge to the IELTS is it's not just American English, which a lot of people are are used to. They intentionally introduce other accents, so the British accent, for example. Uh, but there's also a variety of other accents as well. And students that aren't familiar with that or don't have experience with it, with it will generally have um, have problems. So you definitely want to get familiar with that. But even with pronunciation, like the um, the blending, for example, uh, how sounds blend together, how they link together, that's critical um, to doing well in the in the listening task. Now, for the writing and speaking, um, here's where I would, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for this, but the way I approach it and the secret, I think, to doing that well is the rubric, okay? So when it comes down, we'll, I'm sure this will come up later in our interview, but the secret to the IELTS exam is the rubric. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, the rubric is basically a, a guide. It's like a chart that the examiner has to use to mark the students, okay? And everything that they're looking for is on that rubric. Now, there's, there's a bit of a problem because that rubric is actually secret in a way. The examiner rubric, you can't actually see. And in fact, they're very... Um, it's a confidential rubric. They're very secretive about it. However, they published the public rubric, which is actually pretty darn close to the original. So if you can pick apart and understand that public rubric, you will do well in the IELTS. And that would be the secret, I would say, for teaching those skills. It's almost like the cheat sheet for IELTS. So this is something that I think a lot of people aren't aware. And um, this is something that just like, whoa, just just opened up my eyes like to a whole new side of examining. So let me give you some examples. Um, speaking. A lot of people would think uh, generally, uh, generally a lot of classes focus on fluency, right? But did you know in the rubric, there's actually four categories. There's fluency and cohesion. There's a vocabulary. There's grammar. And there's pronunciation. And e within each one of those categories, there's levels that you have to hit. For example, uh, fluency and coherency. You, you not just A lot of people think about fluency just in speaking fast, speaking without stopping. But examiners also on that rubric, they're looking for what they call signal words. And the amount of signal words you use gets you at a higher score. You use a lot, you get a high score. You don't use a lot, you don't get a high score. But a lot of people aren't aware of that. Um, vocabulary. Um, to get a higher level, like if you want to break the level six and get into the seven, eights, and nines, you have to know idioms. And a lot of people, they don't realize that. They just use, you can use high-level vocabulary, but they're looking for idioms and collocations. And if you're not aware of that, you might be a good speaker. You would never break that level six or seven mark. So this is where you want to go to, uh, like in terms of teaching, you want to go uh, take corpus-based idioms. So there's a lot of books out there. Uh, again, you want to make sure you get the most current idioms that are relevant. So you're not learning things like, you know, uh, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. Like who says that these days, right? <laughs> so this is where I would suggest for teachers, go go and look for corpus-based idioms and find what the top idioms are used. And you'll, you'll find lists. Like for example, um, I just looked it up the other day, you know, for academic idioms. One of the top ones is the bottom line. The bottom line is this. Well, that's a pretty common one to learn. And that's one you definitely want in your repertoire. Uh, same thing with collocations. Online, there's lots of collocation dictionaries. There's uh, Flax, there's Ozdic, there's the Coca. There's a lot of these uh, corpus-based um, resources out there. But you got to learn your collocates. Otherwise, you won't be able to get a high score. Uh, grammar. Again, it's on the public band descriptor. Uh, it talks about using complex sentences. That's critical. And I'm sure those IELTS examiners out there, they know this is like almost like a secret uh, to doing well in the grammar, but it's actually in the public band descriptor looking for complex sentences. Well, what are complex sentences? Well, if you go back and think about, you know, your simple sentences, your compound sentences, and your complex sentences, you're looking for things like, you know, those adverbial adverbial um, subordinators. You know, the although, the though, the even though, so that, before, after. 
Believe it or not, examiners are listening for that. And the more they hear used correctly, the higher the score. It's as simple as that. Uh, pronunciation, same thing. That's the final category. They're looking for things like, uh, I mean, intelligibility. Obviously, you have to be understood. But when you get to the higher band levels, they're looking for things like, you know, emphatic stress. Can you can you emphasize certain words to give meaning? Those are the things that you got to do to score high. And it, it's very, it's, it's almost like a science. The, the examiner has to mark you based on that rubric. They, they, they might not like you. They might not like your attitude. They might not like your, your, your answers, but they must, they're objective. They must follow that rubric. And if you hit those categories, if they can check that off, you will get that band score. So my approach, and this is what I would strongly recommend is if you're going to teach IELTS, or even if you're training for IELTS, you've got to know that rubric because that is the the secret. The it's the bottom line, right? It, it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it's it's your it's it's a tick it's a golden ticket. It's the secret so, formula for it all. So that's, that's where I would go to. It's yeah. a it's a checklist, and essentially, what an examiner is going to do when you finish your your test is they're going to look at that list and they're going to say, "Did you do this? Check." Or if not, they'll move down to the next level or up to the next level, and so on. So, great that's advice cool. and so much knowledge and so many useful practical um, tips right here. So thank you so much, Moses. Um, I guess we need to cover writing next. Yeah, so for writing, um, you mean uh, as far as how, how to approach doing that? Yeah. Yeah, writing, I would say, again, that you, you need to get used to the task types. So it's very precise. And uh, it's a little tricky. For example, in the academic uh, type uh, task one, it's a very particular task where they ask you to compare and contrast and they give you graphs. Something you, I don't know. I, I, honestly, I would say, I don't think you do it that often in real life. Um, and I would say, again, you, you've got to dissect it. You really got to understand exactly what they're looking for. So uh, one of the keys to writing, I would say where you got to start is you got to understand the question. What exactly are they expecting of you? And I'm sure this will come up later in our in our chat, but that's one of the greatest mistakes students make. They think they understand what they're asked to do, but they don't actually do it. So again, you got to. I would say for writing, you got a little bit of help because there's usually a lot of good models out there. So I would look for actual graded um, writing and look at the structure, look at the format, look at how they do it. And again, go back to that rubric for the writing. Again, that's a secret. It's the same things. They're looking for what they call task achievement. Did you answer the question? They're looking for uh, cohesion, your paragraph structure. They're looking for uh, your your um, vocabulary. They're looking for grammar. Very similar to speaking. Are you using complex sentences? Are you using collocations? Um, are you organizing things well? Again, I would say for the same thing, go back to that rubric. That is That is the key to succeeding in the IELTS. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess one more thing that I might add is, you know, you might know these idioms, you might know some of these phrasal verbs and this complex vocabulary, but knowing it and being able to use it effectively are two very different things as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, I've had a lot of experiences of all these amazing, you know, superfluous vocabulary that doesn't fit the task and doesn't fit the question and just doesn't flow very nicely. And it just kind of detracts and the whole thing kind of, kind of falls apart. But Thank you so much for breaking that down. There's a, so much you know, useful information here. So I guess we can bring it back to the students themselves. And again, this is a pretty common issue that a lot of teachers might face. How do you manage expectations for those students who have a low band score or they might have some real, you know, not, not problems, but maybe some issues that are holding them back with their English? How do you manage those expectations and how do you kind of, you know, be realistic and also kind of um, honest with those students? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great challenge when you're an IELTS uh, instructor, 
uh, people come up to you, you know, say, I, I need to raise my band score and I've got three weeks to do it. <laughs> like, is that realistic? So I think the number one thing is uh, looking at realistic expectations. You know, is it is it possible? But again, in order to do that, you have to start by understanding where their area of weakness is, which again, you can't do unless you can break it down. So again, that's why I'm going back to that rubric. So for example, if a student comes and says, you know, I'm having difficulties with, with my speaking. Well, what specifically are they having problems with? If it's fluency, yeah, you could probably get their fluency score up pretty high, pretty quick. There's some great activities out there. Um, one of my favorites is one called 432 by Nation and Nation. If you just Google that, it's a great activity. It'll, it'll bring your fluency up pretty, pretty fast. But if they come to you with a speaking problem and it's pronunciation, well, pronunciation doesn't move, doesn't change that fast, right? So if they're unintelligible and you've got to fix that, like that's going to take a while. Right. So again, I think managing expectations is first off, you really got to understand where their area of weakness is. And then by looking at that, see if it's realistic or not. Um, that's the way I would approach it. Great. Thank you so much for sharing these many great uh, tips and this much advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to ask you something in a specific about the students who want to take the test. What are some uh, common errors that many students are making during the test? what what are ways to avoid them sure okay um i think for listening and reading again those are the ones um it's those are the ones that are easier to manage um because you can practice a lot and that would be my my advice practice and practice and practice usually for those is usually not understanding the task types getting tricked so again um you have to understand you got to remember that when when these when the the questions that are laid out there are to test a range of levels. So there's gonna be some that are simpler and some that are very advanced. So you wanna get really familiar with all those question types, don't get stuck on them and understand there are tricks, right? They're, they're designed to, to kind of test you at the higher levels. So the best way to approach that, I would say, is just just practiced. So the common error is students just don't get enough practice. They think they can just go there and, and do it. Now, for the writing and speaking, that's a little bit trickier. Um, because, and as an examiner, I can probably give you, as a former examiner, I can probably give you more feedback on that because I do see that. So the, the reading and listening are usually automated, right? Um, for the writing, the number one mistake I see that students make is, is, uh, timing. Um, the, the challenge, again, it goes with practice. The challenge with writing these tasks is they, they give you, um, a, a set time, about 60 minutes to do your writing. But during that time, you've got two tasks to write. They don't tell you when the time is up for the first one and the time for the second one. So time management usually is a challenge where students want to get that first task done really well and they, they, they take too long, but it's not worth the same amount as marks as the second one. So managing time is a huge one for writing. Number two, I'd say for writing is, and I alluded to it earlier, they don't answer the question. This is, it sounds so silly, right? Like how can people not answer the question? But you will be amazed at even native speakers, like high level speakers or high level writers that don't score high because they're not answering the question. So for example, if you write an essay and you say, discuss both sides and give your own opinion, you will see people discussing one side and giving their opinion and, and their marks are going to suffer dramatically for that. Or if you're doing uh, you know, maybe a general task and the letter tells you something like, you know, write to your homestay uh, and thank, thank them for staying, explain you left your computer behind and tell them why it's important so you can, they can send it to you. Well, if you missed that first step about thanking them for staying, you've technically haven't answered the question. So it sounds kind of silly, but really a lot of students just don't answer. So when you read that prompt, make sure you understand every part of it, everything they're asking you to do and do it. Um, structure is another problem. 
for writing. Uh, one thing, it's in the public band descriptors. Uh, it says you have to give an overview. This is especially true for task one, especially if you're doing academic, the academic writing. You'll be amazed at how many people don't do that. That is a key criteria. It's in the rubric. So again, going back to the rubric, if it's in there, they're looking for it. And it says you got to give an overview. You must have that overview. Uh, vocabulary is another problem. Uh, some students, they try to play it really safe. And as a result, they don't use the vocabulary needed to push up to the higher levels. So if you're too cautious, you'll suffer from that. And lack of practice. Um, you know, one of the things, again, under under time, under time pressures, uh, you got to make sure you meet that word count. And you don't want to sit there counting your words. And I've seen a lot of papers as I'm marking them where I see the numbers like 25, 50, 55, 60. They're, they're counting the words. That, that's precious time you're wasting. This is stuff you should have done in, in advance. And that's why if you practice, uh, and a great tip is when you're practicing your writing, don't practice on your own line piece of paper. Get the, the exam uh, paper that you're going to be using so that you can eyeball. You have a general idea of how far you have to write to break that 150 word count or the 250 word count. So those are some of the most common mistakes I see in writing. Speaking, um, the biggest mistake I would say is just simply not showing off. So the way I explain to some of my students is your speaking exam, I mean, it's it's kind of, they make it so you're very comfortable. It's, it's, it's not quite a conversation. It's more, I think, more of an interview because they don't really uh, answer you. So first off, you got to get used to that. But people, they start off by giving you very comfortable topics. You know, do you work? Are you a student? Tell me about your home. And people get very comfortable. But they got to remember, this is your chance. You've got a limited window to show off how good your English is, right? So it's almost like if you're, if you're a, like, I remember I used this illustration before my class. If you're an Olympic skater, right? You've got two minutes or whatever. You're going to go on the ice. You're not just going to do your standard stuff. You're going to show off everything you got because you got to impress those judges, well, speaking, same way. You got to show off all your, you know, fluency is easy to do, but you got to show off your vocab your vocabulary. Pull out the, the best idioms you can think of. Show off these fancy collocations, your phrasal verbs. Uh, you want to you wanna use emphatic stress, even though you don't need to. You want to emphasize certain words. You got to show off that you can do that. Um, you got to throw in as many complex sentences as you possibly can, right? Like, it's, it's a different approach. You're not actually having a conversation. You are showing off your English, okay? Um, the other mistake I see for some lower-level students is memorizing uh, phrases. You know, it, it's, it's some, some is okay, um, but, <laughs> and I see Daniel just kind of laughing here because I'm sure he's, he's heard this a lot. You, you can get by with so many, but after a while, the examiner clues in. It's like, okay, you're just spitting back what you memorized earlier. And trust me, you know, regardless of what the books say, when you hit task number three in the speaking, when, when they go off script, so for those of you not familiar with part one and part two, the examiner has to stay on script. They really can't say much other than what's on the piece of paper. When you hit task three, though, it's like a discussion. They can ask you almost whatever they want. And that's where none of the memorized phrases are going to come in handy. If they sense that you're you're memorizing something, they're going to change the topic. They're going to change the question and you're going to choke and they're going to know. So that would be the other big mistake, thinking there's a way to cheat the system that way by having too many memorized phrases. Um, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's definitely one piece of advice I always try to tell my students. Don't memorize. It's not about what you memorize. It's about how you can show your abilities. You, mm-hmm. Like you said, everything that you've mentioned. And, you know, a lot of the times... I'll hear the same standard opening from some students and I'm just thinking, I've heard this so many times before. Where is this coming from? So yeah, it's very true. So obviously we've discussed students and a lot of the common errors that they have. Um, So for teachers, for those teaching, 
What are some of the errors that are made by teachers, the common errors that teachers make when they're teaching IELTS? Sure. I would say you're going to hear the common thread um, that I'm repeating over and over, but it's a lack of focus in the teaching. You, you really have to have informed teaching, informed feedback. And again, that goes back to understanding that rubric. So often, you know, I have to confess, even myself as, a, as an IELTS uh, teacher when I first started, you know, when someone speaks, oh, that's great, you know, and, but I don't really know exactly how to grade their speaking or give them good feedback. Fluency is easy, you know, some vocabulary here. It, it, it's being informed. You got to understand that. You got to understand that rubric so that you can give specific feedback to specific areas and understand the band levels. What's the difference between a six and a seven, a five and six in specifically vocabulary or specifically grammar so you can bring them up to the next level. So I, I would say that just being, just, just having that focused informed approach and uh and also giving effective feedback that again that's focused feedback and informed by the rubrics i think that's the key that's the key to teaching ielts thank you so much i want to mention something um a little bit um important here about the pre-assessment and i want to know about your opinion of so-called ielts experts or gurus who make promises and guarantees to students without assessing them first <laughs> well, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, it's garbage. You know, you just can't do that. It's impossible. Like we talked about, you want to set realistic goals. It takes time to improve. And, and you need to understand where they're at. Like with, without knowing where a student's at, you, you can't promise anything, right? Otherwise, you set them up to fail. You set them up for disappointment. Um, again, yeah, it, it, it just it's just not possible. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's why and that's why this um, wrong expectation is actually created for students that they think that okay like if for example I am at a level five I can reach level six in just one month well mm -hmm. it's not possible we know that but okay so uh, how important is it to understand the students level and skills before giving IELTS classes yeah, I, I would say it's it's really important. Um, of course, it depends on the context, right? Whether you're teaching one-on-one -on -one or whether you're in classes. But in a general sense, um, yeah, you, you really need to assess your students to know exactly where their starting points are. And again, you know, you, it'll sound like a broken record, but going back to the rubric, you need to know what area they need to improve on. So you're focusing your energies and you're designing your activities to target that. So for obvious reasons, if you're teaching a class, you got to make sure they're they're kind of within the same range. Otherwise, you know, it's just not effective for all the students. So I would say it's really important. Um, it also, it's also important, as we mentioned, about um, doing that for setting realistic goals as well. So if you can understand the the starting point and what aspect of that, like which part of their, you know, the speaking or their writing that's weak, again, you can set realistic goals for them. So very important, I would say. Definitely. Great. And just one more question, just to wrap up, Moses. Um, what advice would you give to teachers who are looking to start teaching IELTS? Because they've probably thought this is a huge market. This is, mm. you know, a lot of students are learning this or want to learn this. So what advice would you give those teachers who are starting out in this journey of teaching IELTS? Sure. Well, I think the first thing I would say is um, don't be scared. <laughs> don't be discouraged. It's, it's huge, right? As, you know, we talked about, there's there's a lot to it. So I encourage you to go for it. Don't don't be discouraged. Um, but be very judicial in your resources. Uh, as we mentioned, there's a lot of books out there. There's a whole business out there, you know, because it's a high stakes exam. There's, there's a lot of materials. A lot of people are marketing different things. But I would say be very judicial in what you're using because, frankly, some information is actually just wrong. Um, so you want to definitely be careful in that. Um, 
most importantly, you've heard me say it lots of times is you got to start with that rubric. So if you're going to teach IELTS, get that, get your hands on the rubric. It's, 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 there's a public descriptor for everything, download it and study it. And then once you understand that, start comparing your materials to that. You really need to understand that. Um, I would also say, um, join a community. There's a lot of people that are, are teaching IELTS, uh, and there's some great, um, there's workshops that are put out. There's a lot of support out there. Some really good support. Um, I know the British Council. If you if you uh, ever attend the the conferences, um, I remember even TESOL International when when we were there. Um, the British Council did this whole series on teaching the IELTS, and, and it was done very very well. Um, it's kind of ironic because they're the ones that, that put out the test, but they also train people to teach it. But uh, there's just a lot of great resources out there. But join the community. There's a um, online community. There's a lot of teachers there that will support each other. There's tons of websites out there. Again, you got to be judicial, but there's a lot of help out there. And finally, um, the best thing I think you could do if you're serious about IELTS is be an examiner <laughs> because then you'll really get to understand the IELTS, how it works, and they will train you for it. And there's no, it seems like a conflict of interest. I don't think you can tell people that you're an active examiner, but they don't restrict examiners from uh, teaching. Okay. So you, I don't think you can advertise it, but uh, you could, yeah, if, if you become an examiner, they will train you and then you will understand how the exam works. And definitely that would be the, that would be the, the best way if you want to really be an effective IELTS examiner. Or maybe take the test yourself. And that too, yes. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Although it's three hundred bucks, right? <laughs> that, gave, that gave me, yeah, that gave me a really, a really different perspective, and it really helped me understand what my students go through when they take the test. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's difficult. It's not easy. And yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of things that I could have, could have fallen down, or I could have miss, you know, just mis misinterpreted something or misread something. So. Yeah, I guess that's one more piece of advice. But yeah, thank you so much for cracking open that proverbial can of worms and going through all these different aspects. I think we've got so many useful um, pieces of information and, and advice. So that's, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Moses. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Moses. That was a really interesting and very, um, we learned a lot today during our interview. So guys, thanks again for listening as always. Um, we're continuing to grow and every week, you know, we seem to be getting more feedback and more positive comments. So thank you so much for your support. Um, as always, you can send us an email at esltalkpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook, ESL Talk Podcast. Take care. We will see you next week. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for even more ESL teaching content. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe for even more ESL teaching content.